You are listening to the Sheep Guarding Llama podcast for Tuesday, July 25th, 2006. This is episode 50. I am your host, Scott Allen Miller, and welcome to the show. with Rainfall, brought to you, as always, by the Podsafe Music Network, which you can find online at music.podshow.com. 
All right, welcome to episode 50. This is very exciting. Major milestone for the show. 50 episodes. This is pretty big in podcast land. Um, when we started out, I definitely was not expecting uh, really to hit 50. I mean, it's pretty cool, but uh, was not something I was actually planning on. So this is very cool. Very, very excited to be able to do the 50th episode. Now, uh, at episode 49, I believe, I said that I was hoping that uh, Bob Winans was going to be able to come and be a guest on the show, and he was not able to do that. Uh, we're actually doing the show about a week later than I had intended. Uh, he did come down and visit here in uh, New Jersey, but uh, he was not feeling well and had to rush back to New York, so he was only down for a day. He didn't even uh, spend the night in Jersey, so uh, we lost that opportunity to do the show with him. And uh, Dominica can't be here for the show today. She's in Geneseo, New York, uh, working on getting our house ready to sell. Uh, we are selling our townhouse in Geneseo and uh, moving full-time down here to New Jersey. Uh, we have uh, put down money on a house. We have not yet purchased it quite. Uh, it's hard to say exactly at what point with a house you actually purchase a house. Is it when you reserve the house? Is it when you get the mortgage? Is it when you finally pay off the mortgage? I don't know. But we have put money down on a house, and we hope to be able to move in in late November. That's the hope. Uh, I should find out more soon. Maybe by the end of the week, uh, we will have more data on the house situation. Um, Very exciting news in Sheep Guarding Llama land today. Today is the day that all of the SGL dailies, uh, which you can find uh, if you're listening to the show not from the Sheep Guarding Llama site, you can go over and check it out. That's our parent site, www.sheepguardingllama.com. Dot com. That's sheepguardinglama.com. And uh, that site is uh, my personal uh, identity blog is the correct term for it. And uh, it's basically a diary site, but I, I do all kinds of stuff on there. There's, there's just tons of stuff to go see. Whether you want to find out more about my life, you want to find out more about what I think about different subjects, uh, where I'm at, what's going on, news, pictures, all kinds of stuff, go check it out. Um, and it's uh, the site has been going since uh, 2000, uh, but the, the dailies have only been being recorded since February 2001. And uh, in late 2005, we moved to WordPress, the open source blog hosting software. And uh, it took quite a bit of work to take all that those uh, five years of uh, daily updates, because I, I try to update the site every day, and move that all over to WordPress. That was a lot of manual work, but it is done. After almost a year, it is all moved over. It's about 1,500 entries or so uh, had to be moved over, but it's all there, and there's a search button, so if if you're looking for a topic, uh, you can go search by keyword, and it searches through the entire uh, uh, set of dailies, uh, along with any keywords in like the uh, the podcast information, uh, which which isn't too in depth, but uh, anything in the vlog information, anything in the maintenance logs, uh, there's quite a bit, and it, so it just searches through there. And uh, some time ago, about a, two three months ago, I think it was, uh, the site actually passed the length of the entire. King James Bible in length, uh, and we've written just a ton since then, so we're, I'm pretty sure, well over 800,000 words. We may be uh, really, really close to 900,000 words now in total length, and uh, we are definitely well on target to top 1 million total words on the Chief Guarding Llama dailies by the end of the year, and possibly quite a bit sooner. So that's pretty cool. Um, so there's just a lot to search through. So go check it out if you haven't been there. And uh, you can check out the highest quality versions of the SGL podcast. 
that you are listening to now there. If, um, if you're getting this from an RSS feed, then you're getting it in MP3, either from our excellent hosting partner, Podomatic, uh, which is the site most people find us from, sheepguardinglama.podomatic.com, or you can get a feed from the Podomatic uh, thread at sheepguardinglama.com, and uh, that MP3 is a little bit higher quality than the Podomatic because we have a lot more bandwidth because of our partner, uh, Our Media, which you can find, of course, at www.ourmedia.org, who is the kind of uh, friendly front end to the Internet Archive, uh, and they're awesome, so they give us uh, unlimited bandwidth, but it's a little bit slower, but uh, if you're getting it from there, you get a better MP3 feed, but if you go manually to sheepguardinglama.com, you can uh, click on podcast on the left, go through, and you can get the Og Vorbis feed, which is the highest quality. It's a bit higher quality than any of the MP3s. And uh, if you if you don't know how to use Og Vorbis and you're using Windows, uh, go to zinf.org. That's uh, Z-I-N-F.org, which stands for Zinf is not freeamp.org. Uh, and you can download for free uh, a player there that will play the Og Vorbis. And I think it's quite a bit nicer than Windows Media Player anyway. And uh, it's just a great way to listen to the show. So check that out. And I'm giving all this information because this is episode 50, so I felt it was an appropriate time to do kind of a show recap uh, with some of the information that you need to listen to the show. Uh, it is great to have everybody here. I'm so excited. Episode 50, this is just really, really cool. And we got great music, as always. You already heard Hungry Lucy, who we've played in the past, and I thought this was a good time to have someone that we have played previously as our lead-off song. Uh, and Hungry Lucy is just awesome. They have a couple albums out, and I encourage you to go purchase them and support such an awesome band. Uh, They just have some great stuff, so I'm really glad to be able to play them again. And I'd like to thank the Podsafe Music Network for having such a great service where we can go get music. And uh, let me tell you, I put a tremendous amount of time into auditioning music for this show, so I hope you are enjoying the music because it's great stuff. And I have to tell you, uh, just this past week, I took my uh, my favorite MP3 player, my Samsung Yep, uh, which has about a half gig of storage on it, and I uh, I loaded it up with all the music from Sheep Guarding Llama, and I have it in the BMW, uh, which has an auxiliary jack, and I'm able to plug it straight in and pump SGL tunes while I drive. And, you know, by this time, we've done 50 episodes. We've done about half of them with music. We started around episode 25, and uh, we've done most of the ones since then with about three songs per episode. We've done some with quite a bit more, uh, a few early on with just one or two. Uh, but at this point, we've got quite a quite an archive of uh, music that we've done on the show. And uh, it's, it's great to listen to in the car. Let me tell you, this is good music. Really, really good stuff. And I'm surprised that more of these artists don't have albums. A lot of them do have albums. You can go find them uh, and, and purchase their albums. A lot of times they're indie, so you have to go to like their own website and purchase it directly from them. But that's how, that's how albums are being sold these days. Um, uh, the, the big studios really are, are becoming less and less involved with uh, the really good music, the, the, the major stuff that, uh, that people are getting. So uh, it's, it's been great. All right, uh, I am alone this week, as I said. Uh, I have the entire week to myself, so I'm hoping that we may get episode 51 out. But I keep saying that, and it keeps not happening. So uh, I don't want to. I don't want to get ahead of myself and 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 uh, jinx the whole thing. So we're not going to say the 51's coming this week. Uh, we're not going to say it's coming in July, but it'll definitely come before the end of August. That I feel safe in saying. Um, so this past weekend. I rode on Amtrak. This is my second time since I was a kid riding Amtrak. And for those of you outside the United States, Amtrak is uh, the, I don't even know what it stands for, American 
track company, I guess. It's the uh, pseudo-government railroad service here in the United States. It used to be government at one point, uh, but then it was privatized. And so it, it is now a private company, but it's kind of supervised by the federal government a little bit, just to make sure that we have a working uh, rail system, because rail here in the United States is not very popular. Uh, we have a lot of wide open space that really lends itself to automobiles. And, uh, but, but train travel is just awesome. I love train travel because it's safe, it's fairly quiet, it's comfortable, your seats are big. It's not like being on a plane. You have, you have big, comfortable seats. Um, Amtrak's great because they have these fold-down uh, tray tables. I can put my laptop on it, and uh, every seat has two power plugs, although I'm beginning to, to consider bringing an extension cord anyway because uh, with a splitter because I want to like charge my phone and use my laptop and you know do too many things at once. But... Uh, this pastime was great because no one was in the seat next to me, so I was able to spread out. I was able to put my backpack on the seat next to me and, and have my uh, my Motorola Q, which is my little email device, a wireless email device. I had that sitting next to me, or sometimes I would clip it to the seat in front of me, and I had my laptop up, and I would pop in uh, Magnum PI and uh, play some old 80s television episodes while I traveled, and I've got my GPS on my laptop, and I stick that to the window and uh, open up Microsoft Streets and Trips 2006, and uh, the GPS will pick up the satellites. Uh, it does drop out occasionally, but for the most part, it gives me a scrolling map of where we are so I can look out the window and, and, and know what I'm seeing, and I know what stops we're coming up to, and I can estimate how long it's going to be. You know, I can see I've got, you know, 80 miles left to go before we get to our destination or before we get to a stop, so I know I can, you know, go to the snack bar and get some food. Um... And uh, it shows me the speed we're going, so if I'm worried that we're, we're going too slow or whatever. Uh, it, it's just a great travel companion. Uh, I tend to be, uh, like Nate, very, very into maps. So Streets and Trips with GPS is like the ultimate for hardcore map lovers like us, and uh, that just makes the trip a lot more cool for me. And if you haven't tried it, I, I bet it's great for kids. If you're traveling with children... Uh, this is not an expensive package. I, I think I got mine for about 105, something like that. It's a it's a GPS uh, USB system. It just plugs into a laptop or whatever with USB, and it's a real simple GPS. It comes directly from Microsoft Streets and Trips 2006 for your laptop and the GPS all in one box. And uh, it also has uh, the free version for your pocket PC. So if you have a pocket PC, which I did but do not anymore. Um, because Dominica has it, you can put the the same maps that you're working with on your pocket PC on your laptop, and you just get a lot better value out of the package. But uh, it's just nice; you get everything together, the the GPS and the the mapping software. Uh, and I just put that on the train window, and it's wonderful. And uh, when people ride next to me on the train, they lean over and they watch the map go by because it's really cool. And uh, with my Motorola Q, I've got Verizon Wireless uh, data service. I'm able to check my mail while traveling, which is awesome. Uh, really makes it just uh, a lot easier because I can communicate with people easily. You don't want to use a, a cell phone, really, on the train because you you know you're interrupting other passengers uh, the reception's not necessarily that good because you're moving uh, whatever but with email it's great because you can uh, send an email uh, Dominica I was writing alone Dominica was uh, in Geneseo and I would send her an email every so often to let her know where I was just so she could keep track because there was some fear that I was going to arrive late in Penn Station in Manhattan and uh, get stuck in the train station and have to sleep there until the New Jersey Transit started running in the morning but uh, that didn't happen we made it in time but we were emailing each other so she would know uh, where I was at and, and how things were going. 
the train actually picked me up in Rochester uh, over an hour late. It was like an hour and a half late getting to Rochester. So I was sure that we were going to be so late getting to New York City because uh, I, if I was two hours late, I would miss the last train on New Jersey Transit. And uh, an hour and a half late getting started uh, on a, on a seven-hour journey gives a lot of opportunity for getting later and later. Uh, but Amtrak did a wonderful job and managed to get us to Manhattan, our final destination, within five minutes of the scheduled arrival time. So we basically weren't late at all. And I'm pretty sure that it wasn't their fault that we were late. I'm pretty sure that we sat outside Penn Station waiting for a track to clear uh, longer than the five minutes that we were uh, that we were actually late when we when we um, disembarked. So uh, I'm I'm very pleased with how Amtrak did on that uh, that trip. And plus, you know, I was very impressed with, uh, and I'm not sure what they're called, but n- not the conductor. The conductor is the person who actually uh, runs the train, as far as I know. Uh, although that's all, I'm not sure the the exact difference between the conductor and the engineer. Um, but the the person working in uh, our car was uh, was really really nice and uh, very very polite and helpful to everybody and it was giving lots of really good information over the intercom system as you would come to stops he would uh, give little tidbits about the city and stuff uh, that we were stopping at it was just very interesting it was it was a lot of fun I had a, a good time on the train even for over seven hours on the ride it was really really comfortable and the time flew by now having the laptop with DVDs is a major part of that something to completely keep you entertained while you're traveling and being able to check email and and I wrote uh, two days of SGL dailies while I was on the train worked on a couple other things so I was able to keep myself busy plus I, I, I made sure I was hungry when I got on the train and they have a snack car now riding through New York pretty much it's all you're going to get is a snack car because the, the train doesn't get any longer than eight hours uh, at least it's not supposed to uh, anywhere in New York um, so they just have a snack car, but if you go on longer trips, they do have a dining car with a chef, and they prepare food, and uh, that's got to be really cool, and I hope to do that sometime soon, but uh, I haven't had that opportunity yet. But the snack car, you know, has, has exactly what you would expect from a train snack car. It is a million times better than a plane. It is nothing special, but uh, I was impressed by... Uh, the selection they did have, I was not expecting it to be that big. Pretty much everything is microwave fare. Everything's prepackaged. They throw it in a microwave, heat it up for you. Uh, but they have tuna fish salad sandwiches and chicken salad sandwiches and uh, uh, omelets on a bagel and uh, lots of simple things like that. And cheese pizza, which I, I got, was very, it was very good. I was surprised by how much this microwave uh, cheese pizza was uh, quite tasty. They have uh, soft drinks and water, and uh, surprisingly, I didn't realize that they they had this, but they had uh, beer and cocktails and uh, wine available on the train. So uh, that was that was pretty cool. And you can just go to the snack car anytime during your journey, um, and uh, and get some food. So it was wonderful. I, I got a meal right as I got onto the train, and then I got another snack. Uh, right as I was uh, approaching New York City. And it just worked out really well. It saved a lot of time, and it helped pass the time. And uh, I'm just very, very happy with train travel on Amtrak. And I recommend it to everyone. It's not very expensive. Uh, If you have AAA or a student advantage card, you can get 10 or 15% off your journey. Uh, Get a frequent Amtrak traveler's card and uh, store up for free trips and uh, make the best of it. It's a lot. It's really cool. So if you're going to be traveling by train or have the opportunity to try it out, uh, go to Amtrak.com and uh, see what they can do for you on your next trip. Um, it's just it's just a wonderful way to travel. Uh, and that's Amtrak, A-M-T-R-A-K.com. And uh, the thing to realize about Amtrak, if you're going across the country 
uh, you better want to be on the train because it's going to take a long time and it's going to cost you quite a bit too because you're going to sleep on there and so you're, you're getting a rolling hotel. You've got full included meals, dinner service, um, uh, your beds get turned down for you, you have concierge. I mean, it's a, it's a rolling hotel. I haven't done that. I look forward to trying it out sometime. Uh, Dominic and I have talked about running to Chicago to kind of try that out, see how it is. And uh, because that's just far enough that you can sleep as you head out and wake up in the morning and be there. Uh, so that's got to be really, really cool. But uh, if, you're, if you're making a medium distance trip, either just far enough like Chicago from New York where you can sleep on the train and wake up and be at your destination, uh, it, it ends up being quite affordable compared to getting a hotel elsewhere. Um, or if you're going short enough that it really competes with the plane service. So uh, like Rochester or Syracuse uh, or Utica, Albany, coming down to New York City is perfect. Traveling between uh, any of the big eastern cities, like uh, from the Boston down to uh, Washington, D.C. area, is, is really, really good. Uh, up and down the California coast is very efficient. Um, so, so check where it is you're going, but uh, if you live along a train route, it can be a wonderful way to travel. And remember that trains are absolutely the safest way uh, to travel. There is uh, even even major train disasters uh, seldom result in loss of life or injury. There, uh, it, it really takes something for a train to have uh, a really really bad disaster. So it's uh, that that's a great great bonus. All right, uh, I'm going to take a break here. Um, I've actually got some Domino's pizza on its way, and I'm going to uh, eat that. I'm going to watch some Magnum PI while I eat that. And uh, you are going to listen to the band Dropkick uh, with the song Dogging, Dog and Cat, which I just auditioned this past week. Uh, Rainfall that we, we listened to at the beginning of the show has actually been in the queue to be uh, played for quite some time, but I didn't want to play it on an episode back-to-back with Hungry Lucy from some other time. So I've been saving it, and I thought episode 50 would be a great time to do it. And uh, But this Dropkick is a brand new band that I just found uh, in the past week or two while I was doing a ton of auditioning, trying to catch up with music because uh, so much music comes through the Podsafe Music Network that uh, it's really, really easy to miss a ton of good stuff, and I don't want to uh, have you, our listeners, uh, not get to hear great stuff because I was slacking off and not uh, not auditioning everything. So I've worked my way all the way back through May uh, of everything that's been on there, listening to just tons and tons of stuff. And uh, that's tough, but I am able to listen at the office, and that makes it that much better. So without further ado, I'm going to take a break. This is Dropkick with Dog and Cat. Girl, I never want to hide You just want to stay indoors Promise me you'll give me more Tell me what you want to do Tell me what you want to do Tell me what you want to do I want you to Ask me why All your dreams will reach the sky Hang around for long enough You'll be strong and I'll be tough Tell me what you wanna do Tell me what you wanna do Tell me what you wanna do I want you to Oh 
Safe Music Network, had a chance to uh, eat some pizza in there, watch some Magnum P.I., which is an awesome 80s television show for those of you who have not watched it. If any of you are young enough to have not seen it, it is worth checking out. Good classic stuff, and uh, good family viewing, too. And uh, I managed to do some uh, web work that I had to do this evening, some uh, web design work that uh, was uh, needing to be done. And I'm free to finish the show now, and uh, it's been great. Uh, it's been a good evening. Productive, and we're getting a show out. Episode 50, that is so cool. I'm just so excited that we're finally doing episode 50. Um, it's just awesome. Okay, so on my way home tonight, uh, commuting home, I was listening to the radio, and I heard a, a commentary, I guess it, it sounded like a kind of a, an audio essay, of a guy who had listened to or, or read a book. No, he must have listened to it because he was playing clips from it, but I kind of got a, the impression that he read it and then found an audio version of it. But it was um, some uh, supposed researchers uh, giving reasons why children shouldn't have uh, much access to what they called electronic media. And they classified all media, uh, regardless of what it actually was, as long as there was an electronic device involved as uh, as being this uh, uh, passive electronic and what they call garbage media. And uh, they lumped everything, movies, television, computers, CDs, no matter what. If it was delivered by an electronic device, it was garbage. Um, and uh, they didn't say that you couldn't have any and that you shouldn't watch television or anything like that, but uh, they were giving some uh, really weird examples. You know, they're saying, you know, kids should only have, you know, half an hour of television a day, uh, except on weekends when they should be allowed to have, you know, an hour, and that uh, television and computers and all that's the same. So half an hour total per day on a computer, doesn't matter if they're playing video games or working on homework that needs to be done on a computer, half an hour is it. If, uh, if they're learning, if they're wasting time, if they're chatting with friends, it doesn't matter. Uh, apparently telephone is, is in that, uh, apparently listening to the radio in the car is in that. Um, so, you know, listening to, for example, them read their book uh, could qualify for an entire week of, of trash media, according to these guys. And the, one of the examples this guy gave about what these kids were giving up, he's saying, you know, it, well, kids will, you know, they watch television, they don't have time to go do great things like what he did as a kid. He, and his example was, uh, he, he would ride his bicycle down and play at the town dump, and on a good day there would be a dead sheep there. And I could not believe, and, and neither could the, the person doing the essay, that this guy was comparing educational television like the History Channel or, uh, you know, learn a foreign language on your computer or doing your homework or typing an essay or listening to a book on CD as being trash time compared to playing probably illegally and definitely unsupervised as a small child in a very dirty, dangerous place with dead animals on a good day. And uh, it was really appalling, and it really got me thinking, and I decided I wanted to talk a little bit about my uh, uh, theories, I guess, about children and media 
And uh, now I don't have kids right now, so um, this is uh, kind of an, and uh, my wife will tell you that I, I think a lot about uh, these kind of things. And it's good for me, I guess, to record them like this because when I do have kids, um, they can listen to the show and go back and say, you said uh, blah, 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 and these are your reasons. And uh, so this will come back to bite me in the butt. But um, <laughs> I guess this way I can't, uh, I can't say I never said it. So... Uh, we'll see. And I guess this will be encouragement for my children to go back and listen to uh, to my old podcast and, and to read the blog because there's potentially ammunition to use against me in it. But um, And now, my, my theory on children and media is not that children should be given unlimited access to all electronic media. Regard- First of all, I want to eliminate the idea of electronic media. This is uh, about the dumbest thing I could possibly imagine. Um, it would be like lumping all media uh, from the 1800s uh, together as paper media, saying that all media was the same because at some point there was paper involved, whether it was books or theater or whatever. Well, it's theater, yes, but they memorized it from reading it off paper, or they, they you know, they they transferred the knowledge from one place to another on by paper. Uh, is it, you would say that's about the most ridiculous thing ever, but somehow when when it becomes electronic or digital, as people like to say, uh, which is, doesn't even apply to most of the electronic uh, media's uh, that people use today, somehow all the the common sense goes right out the window, and we start saying the most ridiculous things like comparing watching uh, a, a cartoon. Um, that that has uh, uh, a given cartoon that has no underlying educational value to using a computer to write an essay or to research something, and uh, I think people have lost all sense of of proportion and uh, uh, reality really when it comes to electronic media. Um, adults have a tendency to forget that what we saw as a book. Our kids do not see his books. The, the concept of books has changed. The concept of reading has changed. The concept of uh, listening to the radio has changed. These things are not the same for our children as they as they are for us. And this is going to become more so and more so as we become uh, an older generation. Um, I, at this time, am 30, and uh, to me, now working in IT, uh, being a technologist, uh, I tend to have a, a very... Uh, younger perspective, I think, these days because I I work with it, whereas a lot of people who are roughly the same age as me um, who don't work in IT or or, are not as exposed to these things uh, see them as very foreign and uh, and don't see the integration happening in our world so much necessarily. Uh, But I think they will. It's just going to take longer for them to see it. But um, the, the thing that I thought about was looking back at the forms of what I'll call media entertainment. There's, there are certain types of entertainment that are not media related, like uh, playing games, um, you know, children playing, uh, you know, hide and seek or whatever. That, there's no media involved in that, and it's uh, not a media that's delivering things. When there when there is media in, in say a board game, say playing Monopoly, which I don't think is a very good children's game. I don't think it's a very good game for anybody. In fact, it's what I classify as not actually a game. Any game that can be uh, a quote unquote game that can be uh, distilled down to one or two rules that guarantee the best way to play. I don't consider it a game. I consider it just... It, it's just motions that people go through. It's the illusion of a game. Sure, in Monopoly, you can do things like intentionally lose, but it's not really the definition of a game to be able to voluntarily lose. But I, my personal definition of game is, you know, a competition where, uh, you know, everyone... 
uh, if if attempting to do their best, you know, have have a possibility of winning. That's what a game is, I guess. You know, there's there's a goal and there's the possibility of winning and losing, and it's based to some degree, at least, on how you do. You actually, that's where the term playing a game comes from. Um, you know, it's it's very easy to make a piece of software, for example, or, for example, to uh, take a quarter and flip it and say heads. And if it comes up as heads, you win. And if it comes up as tails, you lose. Most people, I think, would not classify uh, flipping a quarter as a game. It's it, You're just getting a random result. It's just the tiniest, tiniest little piece of what could potentially be a game, but there's it, it's nothing but randomness. You're just experimenting with random, randomness. And using it as a decision-making tool, you know, no one mistakes the flipping of the quarter as the game when you're playing football. No one says, oh, the game's over. No, the people say, no, no, no the, game's, the game's just beginning. They, they only just flipped the quarter. The game hasn't even started yet. Oh, that's not the game. But when it comes to quite often children's games or many board games, regardless of whether or not they're for children, people start, or card games for that example, that matter, people will start to forget that all they're doing is, is hiding in complexity uh, the flipping of the quarter. Um, in Monopoly, quite often, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing to do. You, you land on a space, you buy anything you land on. You put every hotel you can on every piece of property that you're allowed to until you run out of money. And th- there's no, sometimes it's better to buy and sometimes it's better not to. No, it's always better to buy. It's always better to spend your money. And as far as who wins or who loses, as long as everyone plays with that one rule, there's not like skill involved, there's no decision making. Can you buy it? Yes, buy it. Uh, it is the, the simplest little script that you could uh, write down and, and describe to a three-year-old and they would be able to play if they knew that that was how to win. And the only thing left is the roll of the die, and the entire game comes down to it. You might as well just flip a quarter and find out who wins or loses. And, uh, you know, people say, well, you can you can lend or, you know, borrow money from different players. Yes, but anyone who lends you money is intentionally losing. It, they're just extending the game because everyone's realized that it's over, but if you extend it, at least you have the illusion of playing for longer. That's all there is. You're just artificially extending the quarter flip. Um and uh, in Monopoly, people don't tend to realize because it's so complex that it's hidden. You can you can spend hours slowly playing it out, um, and and even after it's decided who will win or lose, or or with such unbelievable certainty. And and the real problem is is not that it you can't that you can determine early on who will win or lose, but you can determine that there's nothing that the players do to make it change one way or the other. It all comes down to the roll of the die. Uh, there's no particular strategy that could reverse your, your fortunes as you have no property and, and the other player owns everything. Uh, you will simply lose eventually. It's just how long does it take? Um, it's, it's snakes and ladders, or shoots and ladders, uh, depending on where you get it from. Exactly the same thing. You roll dies, you move. There's no decision making. If there's no decision making, there's no game. You know that's what a game is. It's about the decision making. You know, it's, you know, people like to say, "Oh, it's whether it's not whether you win or lose. It's how you play the game." But shoots and ladders teaches us that there's no playing the game. There's only winners and losers. There are no players. There is no doing better or worse. So that's a pet peeve of mine is games like that. Just uh, the, the illusion of games. Uh, as a person who believes very strongly in it's how you play. Um, Age of Empires, an amazing game where 
you know, I would rather play a very, very difficult game rather than win because it's the playing that's fun. If you don't enjoy playing, if you only enjoy winning or losing, or, or most people only enjoy winning, flip a coin, at least it's over as fast as possible, and you have a 50% chance that you will win. So I, I don't see how it could be any better than that unless you had a situation where you always won. Uh, Andy and I always joke about the video game where you click go and it says you win and that's it. And all you have to do is click go, and as often as you click it, you will win. And in reality, many people wish that that was the video game that they could play. Anyway, um, okay, children and the media. Uh, I want to look at the media of uh, two generations ago, my grandparents. And we'll say the generation uh, slightly after the turn of the century. Uh, And that's the last turn of the century, not the current one. Um, when they were children, uh, they had media, just like children today do, only their media was slightly different. The me- now, they did have a couple uh, forms of media that we're not going to talk about yet. They had, they had the wax rolls that you could uh, listen to um, if they were insanely rich, uh, but it was so rare and so uh, uh, impossible to, to get anything on that it's not really reasonable to compare that as media. What they really had was paper, like I said earlier. They had books, they had... Uh, theatrical plays and musicals. Uh, they had music in paper form, um, and that was it. So they you know, they had player piano rolls, they had musical notation, uh, musical tablature, things like that. Um, but that was it. That's how they got their music, uh, and that was how they got their books, was it was in paper form. They had magazines, they had uh, newspapers, which were far more popular than magazines at that time. Um, magazines did exist. They weren't quite the same as they are today, but for the most part, uh, they had what we have. Um, now, at that time, uh, you know, we look at the media that they had and we say, oh, oh well, that media is good. Uh, and I'm not sure why we say this, but we, you know, books are good. We have this uh, cultural mindset that reading is a wonderful thing. And I don't want to knock reading. I think reading is very important. There's a, you know, a lot of educational value to it. It's important to be able to read well, to be able to read quickly. It's important to be able to write. I mean, it's a, it's a very fundamental form of conveying information. And, uh, you know, that's great. That is the media that our, our grandparents or, or maybe our great-grandparents grew up with. Um, and the thing that I want to point out is is that the thing that they were getting, the only thing that's really important about reading is, is not the fact that they were able to move their eyes over a set of letters and determine the meaning of them. The value of that is actually pretty low. Once you're able to do that, which is very important, obviously, it doesn't really matter that you do it often, as long as you are getting the information. It's actually the information that they're reading that is where the value of reading is. So uh, I just think that's very important to realize, that it, it's they're getting information from the books. They're, they're getting the words that are written down, and the author was able to convey information to them. Okay. Now, our parents' generation, um, and this, from my perspective as being 30, uh, about uh, 60 years ago, growing up, uh, media was starting to change at this point. You had uh, cinema was very well established, having been around for quite some time. Um, uh, Television was just beginning to take shape as a a solid media. Radio, um, the the telephone was inexpensive and widely available. and uh, so you have uh, a whole new set of media. Now at this time, uh, things get a little bit different, um, but for the most part, it, it's it's relatively the same. You can listen to music now instead of having to read it. 
which personally I think uh, added a lot of value. And you can um, see plays acted out on television instead of having to just read them, which for the most part I think added uh, an awful lot of value. I think you know plays are not meant to be read. That's not their purpose. Their purpose is to be performed. Uh, books are meant to be read, I believe, for the most part. That's how, that's how as authors write them, that's how they think they will be performed. But when uh, Shakespeare, for example, Moliere, writes a play... Uh, they didn't do it thinking that someone would read it as a story or they would have written it as a book because it, that's a better way to convey stories when you don't have multiple voices and you don't have multiple actors. Um, and so it, it, it's much more meaningful. But when, when Shakespeare, Moliere, and, and others wrote plays, it, it was for the purpose of performance. So once we were able to convey this in media, I think we, we added a lot to this. And I think saying that uh, television... Uh, is bad when you you know even when it's bringing you Shakespeare Shakespeare which we determined was good because it was in book form uh, 30 years before that suddenly becomes bad because it's conveyed through electronics even though you're bringing more of the live performance to somebody that seems awfully strange um, what if you're recording a book does a book lose its value simply because you're no longer reading it uh, one of the arguments that uh, these people uh, who who wrote this, you know, electronic media is evil um, book said, was that uh, um, the pe- children needed an opportunity for their for their minds to be able to wander, for them to be able to use their imaginations. And I agree. I think I think children do need to use their imaginations. I think that's very important. But uh, I know when I was growing up, some of my uh, my most important literature time. Uh, for me was was not time that I spent reading. I did read as a child, but uh, I also spent a large amount of time listening to books on tape. And I was very lucky. Um, my mother recorded uh, the entire Chronicles of Narnia for me onto cassette so that I could listen to them at an age when I couldn't quite read them. I was able to understand the books and follow them, but I wasn't able to uh, read the books, follow them, and, and do it while actually reading it from paper. It, it was too much. The words were too big. Uh, the books were too long. And I just couldn't do it at a pace. But I was able to understand the, liter- the literary side of the books. And I got a lot of value out of them. And it, that created my love for literature because I, I was able to understand at, uh, it was about age five that uh, she started. It took, it took a couple of years. I think I was probably six or seven by the time she was done recording them. Um... But at age five, I, I could never have read the seven Chronicles of Narnia, but I sure understood them. And for the first time, books were not just a set of words that you read for the purpose of reading words. It was literature. And I enjoy literature today because of that experience. And had I had to wait several years uh, to find books to be literature... Um, I may have ended up much like uh, many people I knew who didn't read for pleasure. Uh, Many people never read for pleasure. They never find books to be literature. They find them as a bunch of words that you have to work through. And and it really seemed like these people who were writing this, this book believed that, that there was value to doing something that was obviously unenjoyable or people would voluntarily do it. Um, So they were forcing children to do something unenjoyable because they believed it to be unenjoyable when, in fact, uh, I think books are are amazing and there's, there's so much value to them, but it's not the reading that makes it valuable. It's the actual words. It's actually hearing or reading or whatever, but finding out what the author wanted to tell you, that's where the value is. And I think most people would agree. Um, and, and 
this is in, in any media. Uh, it doesn't matter that, you know, it was written to be a play or written to be a book or written to be whatever. Uh, the, you know, an author, uh, a media creator, a musician, uh, you know, composer, an artist, whatever, they wanted to convey something. There's, there's a communications happening here. And it's the communications that matter and not the media by which it is delivered. Um, uh, and then going forward, you know, uh, today we have a whole bunch of new medias, and these are things we have to deal with uh, because they are different. We've got um, uh, quote-unquote digital media. We have computers and uh, uh, media with logic, uh, video games, um, instant messaging, uh, the web. Uh, it's very popular today. Instead of, you know, reading an encyclopedia, you can go online and use an interactive encyclopedia where you can, uh, you know, view video clips or listen to audio or whatever. Um, and I find it very strange that an author, uh, these authors would say that, you know, picking up an old encyclopedia and flipping through the pages had an intrinsic value greater than reading the same information if it was backlit, for example, because it was on an LCD monitor, or that reading about a, a video was more valuable than seeing the video, or, uh, you know, reading about uh, a cheetah and how it runs, or, or reading about uh, a study in the ways that horses gallop was more valuable than watching a video that would show you how they gallop and step through, uh, you know, the, the motions of the hooves and the, and the way that the muscles move or whatever. There's so much more potential value in new media. That's why we create new media, because we want to deliver more information faster and better. And these authors were really saying that it was it was better to not learn than to have to learn in modern ways is is very much now uh you know all these things have to come with a balance and uh you know you know they say well only half an hour of television a night is all you can all you can read and uh, or all you can watch and uh, uh i don't know if i agree with that uh, growing up uh, when I did, I, I was allowed to watch uh, a fair amount of television. I didn't have unlimited television watching, but I did grow up. Uh, <laughs> at the time, it felt like the height of television watching, although since my childhood, I have noticed that television watching has has skyrocketed to, to amounts I can't even imagine in children today. Um, it quite and, and not just children. I, I, that's, that's a very bad, poor way to look at it. Uh, adults today. Children have always liked to watch television. You give a child a television and the average child will sit in front of it until their eyes fall out. And that's just the way it is, because children will always do whatever's easiest. They're children. I mean, let, let's face the fact the average child will, will you know, take the path of least resistance. Uh, it's very hard to get in trouble sitting in front of a television, I guess. <laughs> um, I am amazed, absolutely amazed, by how much television adults I see watching uh, and not just adults my age, but adults quite a bit older than me, uh, people who I feel grew up during a generational time when television was was much less prevalent. It was there, it was it was readily available, uh, but not like it was in my childhood. In my childhood, color television was everywhere, and stereo television was starting to appear, and cable started to appear. I grew up without cable. Uh, I had color mono television with uh, over-the-air uh, broadcast uh, through... Uh, all of my childhood, there was uh, I, I have owned cable only uh, at one point during my twenties uh, for maybe a year or two. Is all the cable I've ever had, and I have only ever watched maybe a few hours of it, having owned it. Uh, so 
that type of television is is decently foreign to me. I mean, I see cable in, in hotel rooms at other people's houses. I, I understand it. I mean, you know, it's so popular today that you can't avoid it, but it's never been a functional part of my life. I've never really come home and been like, ooh, cable. Um, but that being said, uh, I grew up with uh, a number of people who never saw television. Uh, they were They were never allowed to watch it um, as children. And the results that I have seen of this, uh, from anyone that I've ever seen completely restricted from television, was twofold. One was uh, no sense of self-control with television. And I'm sure this happens with any media. You, you take books away from children, you take computers away from children, whatever, but television is what I happen to saw, see that I was at the right age. To have seen, um, apparently my grammar is suffering from uh, all this talk of television, um, but uh, what would happen is uh, I noticed in myself, as I w- grew up watching television, eventually I would regulate myself. I started off with, well, I would watch a little bit too much television, and then I wouldn't feel well, or I wouldn't get anything done, or I would get to a point where it was boring, and eventually I would say, you know, I don't want to watch television. And what eventually happened was I stopped owning televisions. I, I have not owned a television uh, per se, in a very long time. And when I did own one, I didn't have an antenna or cable um, most of that time. So television has not been a regular part of my life in really about 10 or 12 years. This is significant. I watched a ton of television as a child, and I, I pretty much phased it out. And what I did was, you know, I used DVDs, I used uh, laser discs uh, for a long time, I used other media to bring television like entertainment, but I do it in a slightly different way, and uh, I'll talk about that way in a little bit, but um, children that I saw who never had television, what they would do is, once they were then given the opportunity to have a television, because everyone has that opportunity at some point, whether it's when they finally become an adult, or whether, you know, just they're in a situation where they get access to it, they don't have that regulation uh, built into them anymore because it's a novelty. This is their chance. They have to u- take this opportunity because they don't have it. Um, just like the child who's never given a candy bar uh, ever, when they finally have one, they don't understand not to just eat candy bars. Uh, things in moderation. The second thing, and this is I'm going to look at this through through all the different uh, media's, but uh, what the children who didn't have any television lacked. And in my childhood, this was very pronounced. Um, I can only imagine that today this is dramatically more pronounced because of the amount of television, the amount of electronic media that is used compared to you know, traditional paper media, reading or whatever, is that they lacked literary reference. Let me repeat that. By not watching television, the children who I knew during my childhood, about the same age as me, who were not watching television, lacked literary reference that the rest of us had. Now let's go back and look at that in uh, uh, with like my grandparents. With my grandparents, they had shared literary reference. And some of the ones that they would have had was they had the Bible, they had Shakespeare, they had uh, Louisa May Alcott, they had Ellen Montgomery, they had Homer, they had lots and lots of... I don't know what literature was super popular at that time, but they had a bunch of literature. Now... Theirs was all paper, but they would, uh, you know, everyone they knew would have read a certain core number of books, seen a certain number of core plays, or have read the plays, or whatever. They would have, uh, to some degree, known certain musicals, or operas, or whatever. And this shared literary knowledge is used as a way to convey information. 
and this has always happened. Uh, and even if you read Shakespeare, he uses literary reference. Uh, you know, if you look through uh, ancient Roman writings, they use literary reference to writings we don't necessarily still have. But this is a, an, an incredibly core piece of our ability to communicate with each other is by having, uh, let's take Romeo and Juliet, for example, one of the most famous uh, pieces of uh, pre-20th century liter- literature. Um, I can say to you, uh, it's a Romeo and Juliet situation, and the amount of information that that conveys to you about a given situation is unbelievable. Um, I can quote uh, Mark Anthony, uh, friends, Roman countrymen, lend me your ears, and instantly it conjures up all these emotions and, and images and feelings. I'm able to bring this huge volume uh, of, of communications to you because you and I share a literary reference. Now, Shakespeare is easy because just about everyone has a gigantic Shakespeare-shared literary reference. Um, but uh, people who are my age tend to have, uh, uh, you know, I can, I can talk about characters from a book like Atticus, Scout, and uh, Boo Radley, and uh, the average person my age, uh, who is decently well-read, will instantly recognize those characters from um, uh, Harper Lee's book, To Kill a Mockingbird, and they will know the story, they will know the uh, significance of that uh, in, uh, Amer- in America here. This is a, a major literary work, possibly the greatest book ever written in America. Um, uh, you know, it brings huge uh, social and political um, ideas uh, directly into your mind. You can use that as a starting point for a conversation, or you can use it as a, as a reference or as a counterpoint. And if you don't, if someone hasn't read that book, it takes a lot more work to convey that information, and quite often that person will be left out of communications. There's a reason why Harvard is famous for their reading list that they require all their students to read. I don't know if they still do this, but, but they used to. Not very long ago, they still had this, this huge reading list that was expected of all Harvard students to have read, and it was just tons and tons of classic and important literature so that their students would be, uh, we like to use the term well-read, but what we actually mean is that students carry a large personal library of shared literary references. And uh, Harvard recognizes the, the vast importance, the importance of having this. And uh, I, I think a lot of people begin to forget that that's why it's so important that we share literature. Um, so for... Uh, uh, you know, two generations ago, you know, books is what they had, plays are what they had, and they had to read them, and then they were able to have the shared reference. Well, in my childhood, uh, we had television shows like um, uh, Happy Days, Cheers, The Simpsons, uh, The Flintstones, they were in reruns, but uh, Gilligan's Island, um, Laverne and Shirley, uh, you could hum a tune from one of those shows, you could mention a character, you could uh, you know, anything. You could use them as literary reference in the same way that people uh, a generation or two ago would have used uh, characters from Johnny Tremaine or from uh, Last of the Mohicans or, uh, or Harper Lee or um, All Quiet on the Western Front or whatever. Uh, so it's important to realize that this is this generation's shared literary reference. Not that all books are gone. Definitely not. But there are fewer books in the collective literary reference available. Uh, 
but there is a ton of television. So I believe that the actual uh, personal library that people have is increasing. But if your child or if you are outside of the pool of people who are sharing in that reference, uh, you get left out of uh, simple things like inside jokes, but you also lose uh, a huge amount of communications. And you don't know what you're missing. I don't know what I'm missing. Um, but it's out there. People are communicating, and you may not always pick it up. Um, when you're in a you know a business meeting, is a terrible time to find out that everyone is communicating by using literary reference to uh, literary devices that you're not familiar with. Um, now, moving past, uh, uh, you know, movies, uh, movies obviously have, have huge references um, that have become very important. You know, uh, today, if you don't know characters from Star Wars, is just like not knowing Shakespeare. You have to understand the importance of the Luke character, uh, the Yoda character, the Darth Vader character, the Han Solo character, uh, the Princess Leia character. These are the Romeo and Juliet characters of today. These are these are phenomenally important. Um, Star Trek has a bunch of important references. The Sound of Music has important references. Um, I could go on and on. The the number of movies that have absolutely phenomenally important literary references, uh, and people use them so much that you don't even necessarily notice them. And it's it sometimes it's quotes, sometimes it's music, sometimes it's uh, images or uh, uh, scenes or uh, dialogue, whatever. It, there's just so much that people are able to pull from that. Um, now, uh, since the 1980s, video games have begun to enter that uh, collective literary uh, library as well. And I think a lot of people forget this, but it's, you know, to people from my generation, if you say Mario and Luigi, instantly people know, uh, at least if you're my age, that you're talking about the Donkey Kong series of video games and its direct derivative, the Super Mario Brothers uh, series of video games, which is still running today. Both series are still running today. Um, but these are, you know, to, to people of my generation, you simply know who they are. You don't have to elaborate. You don't have to, you know, you can say, you know, well, I'm like Mario and you're like Luigi. You don't have to elaborate to, for people to know exactly what you just meant by saying that. And it's a, it's a weird reference. I don't think very many people use that. But you're able to use a, a huge amount of, the, of video games um, in, uh, in communications. And that's going to increase, I believe, as we move forward, as video games become more and more a part of the common uh you know, um, entertainment collective and as television begins to fall behind. Uh, right now, the generation uh, who is at that age where video games would be uh, most prevalent, uh, they did not grow up with video games in the same way as they grew up with television. I think that's currently affecting that, but I think in the next 10 years we'll see a huge shift uh, in the preferred format of entertainment. And that will cause a huge shift in the uh, preferred literary references. Um, so that's, that's, that's basically, uh, what I want to get at is that you can't take away, uh, the shared literary reference and you can't say that because it's electronic that it doesn't have the same value. Now, this isn't to say that time spent at a computer is necessarily valuable just as time spent in front of a book is not necessarily valuable. And this is the mistake that I think people make the most is they want to glorify reading and the reality is, reading a tabloid, reading pulp fiction, reading a trashy novel is not quality time just because it's reading and just because it's on paper. 
it's time wasted, the same as watching bad television, playing a bad video game, uh, or, or doing nothing. Uh, this is wasted time. It doesn't matter what media it comes in. And quality books, To Kill a Mockingbird, All Quiet on the Western Front, are quality regardless of whether you are reading them on paper, listening to them on CD uh, narrated, uh, playing a video game that takes you through the parts of them to, to make you understand uh, how they fit together, or whatever. Uh, seeing it acted out in a play, whether it's on stage or recorded, just because it's recorded doesn't take away its value. Um, and I, I, people need to realize that it's not the media that matters. Now, one of the things that everybody likes to point out is that uh, a lot of people feel that spending time in front of a computer has great value for children today, simply because they're going to spend the rest of their lives in front of computers. And this was pointed out in that book uh, that was read on the on the radio. Um, and people feel that your children are going to spend the rest of their lives in front of computers. Every moment they spend in front of a computer now is valuable. And this is not true. Um, they can waste time on a computer just as easily, or possibly more easily, than they can waste time anywhere else, just as they can get value out of a computer more easily than they can get value out of most other things. One of the big differences, and this is something that I think people really miss, when I was a child, and uh, I don't mean to point everything to the time when I was a child, but I really do believe that I grew up at a very wonderful time for computer learning. I think that people who are my age or roughly my age had the absolute perfect opportunity for learning about computers. And the reason for this is that computers were just inexpensive enough and just prevalent enough that almost everybody had access to them. And really the best it was probably a couple years after me, two to three years younger than me, so people who are, are about 28 to 27, 27 to 28 today, um, they probably had the biggest advantages. But I had access to computers a little bit earlier than most people my age, so I fit into the category even though I'm a little bit on the old side. Um, but when we had computers when we were young, uh, the computers we had were like the Apple IIe, the Commodore 64, stuff that to me is very nostalgic and to younger listeners doesn't even make any sense. But when we had these computers, uh, they were not very useful as video game machines. Uh, they, you know, We couldn't use them to play DVDs on. They weren't a substitute for television. They were not... Uh, uh, you know, you could play video games on The Commodore 64 had tens of thousands of video games. But the video games were silly and they weren't what you sat down and did with your computer all the time. Some people did, but for the most part, it wasn't why people had computers. Today, lots of people buy computers for incredible amounts of money for the sole purpose of playing video games. And that's, that's a big difference over the way it was uh, 15, 20, 25 years ago. Uh, 20 years ago, when you bought a computer, uh, generally it was for educational purposes. That was why you bothered to spend the money on it. Otherwise, you would have bought a Nintendo or an Atari or a Sega Master System or whatever, an Intellivision, uh, something that was dedicated to playing video games, cost a little bit less, and had better video games and and was easier to deal with. Uh, but if you had an Apple IIe, for example, uh, chances are you were going to learn how to program on it, and you were going to use it for some things other than video games, whether it was a little bit of word processing or VisiCalc, do a little bit of your finances on it, or whatever. Uh, but when I was a kid, it was very, very popular for, for kids with computers, kids who were able to get uh, regular access to computers. They would program. And 
programming on a computer is completely different than playing video games. Playing video games is, you know, whether it's an electronic video game or a non-electronic game, you know, uh, playing uh, charades or whatever, it's still a game. Is there value? Definitely. There can be an incredible amount of value to video games. I don't want to knock video games in any way, even though, uh, in general, I don't prefer to play them very much. Um, But it's still learning through games. And it's not the same as using computers as a as a major, major educational tool the way that programming uh, did and does for students, uh, for children. And the fact that the, the number of people who would sit down at a computer, uh, the proportion, I guess, of children who sat down at a computer in 1985 and did programming and real programming, uh, you know, nothing, you know, not about fancy graphics and lots of colors. You spent your time figuring out how to make the computer do things. Uh, it was a time that the computers were just very conducive for, for understanding how the computer was working underneath, learning more about it. Um, and I think that's something that we've really, really lost sight of that our kids need to understand today. We had those advantages. Uh, a lot of people that are about my age have a vast knowledge of computers intrinsically from the way we used them at the time. Not because we, we went out of our way to do it, not because we were driven to learn about them, because that's what you had to do with them. They weren't simple to use. You couldn't just turn on the computer and have lots of flashy graphics come up and look cool and click here and a video game starts up, and you couldn't just talk to your friends over it and you couldn't just do lots of entertaining things. You had to figure out how to make that computer entertaining. And about the only way to do that was to learn how it worked. And yes, you could play video games on it, but probably not with anyone, probably all by yourself. That took some of the value out of the video games, so you started looking at other things to do. And uh, just getting the computer to do things was a, pr- a pretty, major, pretty major triumph for uh, most students at the time. So it, was, uh, it just lent itself to learning a lot, and, and we need to figure out how to make children today want to do those same kind of things. Not just... Now, I'm not saying that children should avoid playing video games. I'm not saying that they should not use their computers for, uh, you know, email and instant messaging and communications and all those things, because knowing how to use those forms of communications, knowing how to use media uh, in the new integrated media infrastructure, knowing the collective uh, literary references are vastly important, but we can't overlook that computer knowledge itself that we were so willing and so easily able to give in the 1980s that seems to have vanished in recent years. And uh, everyone is so eager to make computers friendly and easy and pretty and uh, you know more accessible to people who don't know anything about them that we've taken away the desire and the need to know anything about them. And what we're doing is we're creating the real digital divide is being created here. Uh, not between those who have computers and don't, not between those who have access to them and don't, not to those who can read and to don't, but, and not between those who have email and don't, but the difference is the people who understand and the people who don't. And the people who understand are, are safe, they are uh, protected from, you know, Today, uh, uh, scams through email, banking scams, are a huge problem. There, you can't do anything but bank online. It's the only efficient way to bank today. But the average consumer doesn't know the difference between, and this is actual studies, the average consumer has no idea when email is real or when it isn't real, when it's being uh, faked by someone who's trying to trick them. They have no idea 
why one would be real or not. They have no idea who could be scamming them. Like the entire concept of uh, malicious intent over the internet, because they don't know how it works. They don't know how the computer works. They don't know how the, how the network works. And uh, quite often, they don't think about the the fact that they're connected to millions and millions of people. Uh, they're left in the dark and are very, very vulnerable, very, very gullible, simply because they don't know enough uh, about how things work to know what's possible, what's likely, what's feasible. Um, and so it's, uh, it's it's very, very important. And often then people don't realize, and this is going to become, right now it's pretty minor, but it's becoming bigger and bigger problem. Just recently we heard that uh, uh, they're starting to use uh, portable uh, phone numbers so that uh, people can do uh, over-the-telephone scams. Now, the way that this works is telephones today go over the Internet. People like to deny this. People like to ignore this. They they think that the telephone, because it's not directly plugged into a computer, somehow is not connected to the world network of you know the Internet, of everything in, in one big place. But the reality is it is. And people using uh, some new technology uh, tel- telephony are able to very, very easily get a local phone number to you and act like your local bank and get you to give them information, quote-unquote, over the phone or over the Internet. You know, you don't know where your phone call goes. When you when you pick up the, the handset and you place a number, uh, dial a number, even if it's you dialing and you dial a local number that's the same, you know, you, you're at 716-382 and you dial 1-716-382, you don't know that that's going to the same town as you. You don't know if it's going to the same country as you. Uh, my telephone, um, I have a Vonage line, I have a Voice Pulse line, and um, either one of them, I can pack up and I can go to England and plug in my phone and it'll work. I can go to Russia and plug in my phone and it'll work. I can go to China, plug in my phone and it'll work. And I can dial you, and your caller ID will say that, that my phone is a Geneseo phone in, in rural New York, and maybe I'm there, maybe I'm in India placing the call. You don't know. Uh, but if you believe that the phone number tells you where I am, you may believe it's impossible for the FBI not to be able to just track me down by the phone number. I may not be in the same country. I may be in a country where stealing your money is completely legal. And... Uh, that's really important to understand that you don't know where that phone number is going. Um, and so I'm a little bit off topic there, but uh, I'm going to uh, wrap it up. We are at an hour and 10 minutes. Um, but uh, uh, the, the wrap up is, I think all things in moderation, I think children need access to media. Uh, I don't think you can take away all television. Hopefully children will, uh, learn how much television is right for them, how much computer time is right for them. Um, but I don't feel that uh, playing in the in the town dump with dead animals is superior to even wasted time on uh, on a computer on the television. I would I would ret- much rather have my children um, <laughs> doing nothing but watching television rather than playing in the dump with dead animals, uh, especially if they're unsupervised, uh, possibly with you know strangers there in the dump. Um, uh, But what I really hope is that my children decide to use uh, at least a significant portion of their time with these medias, using them in valuable ways, using them to uh, convey important information and important literature and important shared li- uh, literary references and uh, learning how things work and understanding the world around them uh, because computers and uh, uh, integrated media is how my children and even myself are going to have to communicate with the rest of the world. 
for the rest of our lives. And ignoring it is not going to make it go away. Ignoring it is going to make you or your children unprepared and, uh, and susceptible to uh, a world of dangers that don't exist to people who are, are well-versed and, and understand those media. So uh, I'm going to wrap up. It has been great. I'm so happy that we were able to do episode 50, and I'm sorry that we went so long. An hour and a quarter is really long for an episode, and I try not to do that. But uh, this was a good one, I think. A lot of good stuff. And uh, if you didn't like it, well, too bad. Write me. No one ever writes me. No one ever leaves comments. I don't understand. We have lots of people registered on the website, but people aren't leaving comments. So get out there and leave a comment. What do you think about children in media? Uh, And uh, if you don't want to leave a comment, even better, sit down with Audacity, uh, which you can find at audacity.sourceforge.net. The link is on the website. Um, Go there, record, get me an MP3 or an Orbis file, and uh, send it off to me. You can send it to me in email. Uh, you can find me at scott.miller, that's S-C-O-T-T dot M-I-L-L-E-R, at sheepguardinglama.com. Uh, send the file to me, and I will put you on the air. That would be awesome. Um, and Bob Chrisman is the only person who ever does that, but Bob, go ahead and do it anyway. Uh, <laughs> we'll put you on the air, too. All right, everybody, we are going to take you out with... Um, a song by Heather Sullivan. This one, I feel awful. This has been sitting in my queue for so long. And uh, I've actually played it so many times in the queue, wondering if it was the right song for that particular show, that uh, I, I know this song really, really well by this point. And it's hard for me to believe that we haven't played it or that it isn't on like a CD that I own. But uh, this is Somewhere There Lies the Moon by Heather Sullivan. Thanks, everybody. I hope you have a, a good drive. Uh, enjoy your week. And I hope to be back real soon. This is Heather Sullivan. Somewhere there lies the moon. There's a great big world outside your little window. Like Christopher Columbus, we're sailing through space. Just one small step, yet light years away. Somewhere there lies the moon. Fly a Santa Maria through the dark of the night Crossing shadows in the blink of an eye In between the valleys and the highest constellation Somewhere there lies the moon On the dark side
There's a great big world outside your little window. Like Christopher Columbus, we're sailing through space. And in between.